The Electorette is brought to you by you. Seriously, it's listeners like you who inspire me to keep going. And if you're one of Electorette's newest Patreon supporters, I'd like to sincerely thank you. Your support means everything, and it helps Electorette continue to amplify the voices of women. And if you'd like to become a new supporter of Electorette, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash electorette. There are some great bonuses there for patrons at all levels. And again, I want to thank all of my listeners so much from the bottom of my heart. And I hope you enjoy the show. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. Today, I have a conversation with Myla Johns. She's a candidate for Maryland State Delegate in the 18th District. And like a few of the candidates I've spoken to in the past, Myla Johns was driven to run for office for the very first time following the 2016 election. The thing that's most interesting about Myla Johns' platform is that she's had personal experiences with nearly all of the positions and issues that are a part of her platform. So she really gets what constituents in her district are struggling with and care about. And she has one of the most interesting backstories I've ever heard. Just when I thought I've heard the most interesting thing about her, she tells me something new and something even more interesting. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Myla Johns. Myla Johns, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So many women have made the pivot to run since Trump's election, since the 2016 election. And, you know, I find your backstory particularly interesting because you were a researcher and a terrorism analyst for the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses. I'm, I'm just going to cut that out. <laughs> I know it's a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, you'll leave it in. But you were a researcher and a terrorism analyst, right? I was. Why did you decide to leave that role? Well, I had been offered a position with Customs and Border Protection. I would have been working on a team setting up a new vetting process for Syrian refugees. So I was all set to take that job, and then Trump got elected. And I watched the returns coming in on election night with horror with half of the country, and I sent the email and said, I'm sorry, I can't take this position. Wow, you sent it that night. Yeah, I, I'm probably in the early hours of the morning because I stayed up and watched to the bitter end. Right. I think everybody kind of remembers where they were that night. Yeah. Right? I just remember the dread like slowly, you know, <laughs> coming into my body, you know, overnight. It, yeah. It didn't seem real. It was completely surreal. So if you hadn't left, you would have been responsible for working on the the new policies around extreme vetting for Syrian refugees. What would that have entailed? Um, I was hired to primarily work on a team that would be using deep and dark web technology to do an additional layer of vetting for refugees, just to make sure people were who they said they were, they didn't have extremist links. So it would have been a very academic, hands-off role. But I didn't want to have any part of it under a Trump administration when he had campaigned on extreme vetting. Right. You know, and I'm not really even sure what that means, because some people would argue that, you know, there already is extreme vetting of these refugees. Like like what specifically would have would have changed, do you think? I honestly don't know. There are something around 21 steps that you have to go through to get refugee status in the U.S. that includes multiple interviews, background checks, financial checks, all of these things. I mean, there are less invasive anal probings. It's just one of those (laughs) things that people just assume 
it's easy and it's not. It is a tremendously high bar. Yeah. I mean, especially now. So, I mean, one of the statistics that I recently read was the annual chance of being murdered by someone other than a foreign born terrorist is something like 250 times greater. Exactly. Right? <laughs> you know, and the, the absurdity around, you know, this focus of Syrian refugees. And, you know, I think this year, since Trump's been in office, but at least this year, only 11 Syrian refugees have been admitted to this country. Yes, that, that was the total number, I think, for was it 2017 or 2018 so far? Well, the sad thing about your leaving this role is that you were doing some really important work around human trafficking, right? But now you've been driven from that work. You know, I contemplated finding another job in the field. Me and every other Democrat who suddenly found themselves without a backup plan <laughs> that morning. And I looked into it for a few months. I applied to a few positions that would have been in similar research roles. And ultimately, I decided I needed to be more involved directly. I needed to actually do something. Do you remember that moment that you decided to run? Uh, yes, I do, actually. I had been at home. I had a very generous severance package for my job, thank goodness. And I was just watching the news and reading and getting progressively angrier and angrier. And my husband came home and... For about the 12th day in a row, I immediately began the barrage of, did you see what happened? This, 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 the list of outrages that had been perpetrated that day. And I, I had taken to watching the uh, Sean Spicer daily press briefings wow. because that was, you know, good for my blood pressure and mental health. <laughs> but he finally just said, you know, you should do something. And I said, you're right. It should. And <laughs> I thought about it for a couple of days. And we've known our local state senator for about 15 years as a family friend. Yeah. So we knew he was going to be running for governor. We knew one of the delegates would run for his seat. So there was going to be at least one opening. We thought that another might run for another office. And Maryland is unique, I should say. We have three delegates per district. We're the only state that still has multi-member representation. So I basically saw where the chips were going to fall and that, that there was going to be at least one empty seat. So I talked to people and said, all right, that's what I'm going to do. I can make a difference at the state level. That's where I can really influence and make policy that will be helpful in keeping Marylanders from being impacted to the full extent by some of these really harmful proposals coming out of D.C. So since you decided to run, what's been the, the, the hardest or most surprising thing for you, you know, being a candidate now? Um, honestly, there's about there's two things. I can't really narrow it down. The first one is the insane amount of questionnaires that every group under the sun will send you a questionnaire. And because, you know, as a first time <sighs> candidate, you have to do all of them. You can't say, oh, I don't yeah. that group's not important. I don't know how what their reach is. So you do all of them. And it is a tremendous amount of research and writing, which thankfully I'm very well trained to do. But I can't imagine if I was working full time and trying to do my work and do this. Yeah. And the other thing would be as a female candidate, people will say things to you that they would never say to a male candidate. Yeah. I've had people just call me randomly that I've never met to discuss my race <laughs> And then tell me they think I'm too blonde. What? Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't even know what to say. Like people just will make comments about your hair, your appearance, your voice. Do you do the up talk? 
at the end. Oh, God. And it's the totality of it. It's like little things constantly. The randomly calling to tell me they think I'm too blonde was an outlier. It's just the everyday stuff that people don't think about that they would never say to a male candidate. I need to know who this person is now. <laughs> like, I'll tell you offline. I, just, I don't understand. Like, okay, so a problem with your appearance, which, you know, unfortunately, women candidates deal with that all the time. You know, they should not. That makes me angry. That's just not very rational. Like, what is too blonde? Is there a right shade of blonde? I mean, like, I, I'm not sure. At this point, all of the challengers in the race were white. (laughs) Um, So he was somehow making the point that it made me seem extra white. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I was like... uh, what do I do? Like, I, how do you even respond to that? I, I don't remember what I said yeah. in the moment because yeah. what do you what say? Do you that? say right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so on to important issues that people should ask women <laughs> candidates about or any candidate, rather, like healthcare. So I know healthcare is a big issue on your on your platform, and you had some of your own experiences that kind of drove that for you. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, I would say that that is the number one motivating factor in my deciding to run is healthcare. I had been kicked off my insurance when I was 20 for a pre-existing condition. It's before Obamacare, it's before you couldn't do that to people. And a few months afterwards, I found out I was pregnant. Yeah. And I wasn't just pregnant. I was five and a half months pregnant. I had no idea I'm an MTV episode <laughs> of whatever channel that shows on. Um Wow. But I was able, because my mom actually works in insurance, to quickly get on the state Medicaid program because I was in college. I wasn't working. I had no income and no insurance. And I got on it not a moment too soon because when I was six months pregnant, I went into preterm labor with my daughter. Yeah. And if I hadn't had that coverage, my daughter would have died. Or I would have been completely bankrupted for medical bills. It would have been just unbelievable. And even still, I had been so used to being in the mentality of not having coverage that I hesitated to call the doctor. I hesitated to go to the hospital. It was like, is it really that bad? My husband finally was like, you're getting in the car right now and we're going. And it's a good thing we did. But when I saw that literally one of the first things the Trump administration tried to do was go after healthcare, go after Medicaid and all of these programs to attack these programs that were dedicated to helping those who most need help. And it was just unconscionable to me because it had saved my child's life. It had potentially saved my life. And that was the moment I said, I've got to do something. I think that's what was on the Sean Spicer press conference that day that really inspired my decision. And also, I think often people forget about the decisions that people who don't have health care, the decisions they need to make. When you do have health care, we have the luxury of deciding, like, you know, do I want the nine o'clock appointment or do I want the 10 (laughs) a.m. appointment? Right. You know, we don't think about whether we should even go or not, you know, because can we pay the bill? Yeah. And it had become my reality. Yeah. So the thing is, is that, you know, you talk about the Sean Spicer press conference and, you know, one of the first targets of Trump's administration was the ACA. And, you know, that angered me, too. 
Do you think this administration has been successful at sabotaging the ACA? I do. I think they haven't been able to completely repeal it the way they would like, but they've made a number of changes that have made it much harder for people to get coverage or much less impactful of a fee if you don't get insurance. And they've allowed these plans that basically don't cover anything in order to pass. And they're saying they're ACA compliant and they're not. They're clearly not, but they are under all these exceptions that have been made. And one of the things that really, really upsets me is that they have decided to institute these work requirements for Medicaid. And one of the things people don't realize first of all, is the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. Yeah. But a lot of people that are on Medicaid are kids. They are young children who really can't work or they're people with disabilities that are on social security disability. They have very limited incomes and very limited means to be able to work, to physically meet these work requirements. I was at the National Association of Medicaid Directors They had a group of us speak on a panel called Medicaid from the Patient Perspective. And I was sharing my story. And earlier that morning, the director from the federal government made this announcement in a session. The entire conference was freaking out about this because it had just been announced with no warning, no guidelines. I have a dear friend who lives in Pennsylvania. She has two boys with a rare condition. And she was suddenly didn't know if she was going to be able to keep her kids alive. That's just not. I, how do you do that to people? Yeah, right. And for the reasons it was done, right? Yeah, I really believe we need to, as a society, have a new conversation about what the social contract means. Because we're the richest country in the history of the world. We are a first world industrialized nation. And we don't think healthcare is a basic human right. We are an aberration globally. And that is something that we need to change. Why is it that we are okay with charity coming from churches and religious organizations, but the government being involved is somehow seen as inherently awful instead of being a basic service that is provided by the government? Right. I mean, that that's a whole other episode, I, right? The, the way that it's perceived by people, right? Yeah. Um, the, the negative associations that people make with the government helping. Another fascinating thing about your past is that, you know, I read that when you were in college, you founded a pro-choice organization. And then secondly, you volunteered as a clinic escort. So what drove you in college to do this? I discovered that my college, the University of Maryland at College Park, which is a very large school, did not have a pro-choice group on campus. And I was just incensed by that. Yeah. I said, okay, well, how do we go about starting one? So a friend and I got together and we got all the people we needed to put their student IDs on the list so that we could found our club. And we did. One of the things we immediately began doing was clinic escort training. It's called the Washington Area Clinic Defense Task Force. And our acronym is WACDF. And 
I, it's it's awful, but it's been that way since the eighties. <laughs> so we just go with it. And there's a local clinic, and I had done all of this before I found myself unexpectedly pregnant, which produced hysterical results when I was walking around campus like nine months pregnant with my I Heart Pro Choice Boys shirt or at the student activities thing. You could see heads exploding. Of, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I'm like, yes, it's pro-choice. My choice is to have the child. Right, right. Your choice might not be. Some people forget that. They just yeah. think pro-choice means I'm going to choose to end this pregnancy. It's a, it's a choice. Exactly. There's more than one option. <laughs> like, just because I decided to on one course of action doesn't mean I think that's the right one or everyone should do it. I think that individual woman should decide. Yeah. And I got really involved with clinic escorting. Um, I'm now the training coordinator. I'm going into my second year for the group. So I manage the trainings for clinics in Maryland, D.C. and Virginia. And I've been doing it for 14 years. And I actually just took over as the clinic coordinator for Dr. Leroy Carhart's abortion facility in Maryland. So he's the only provider of late-term abortions on the East Coast. So I'm just curious, what is the climate like right now at these clinics, right? I mean, they've been trying to dismantle this right for for years, right? I mean, is it still heated? Are people met with protests often? What have you seen over the years? It has definitely gotten worse since Trump was elected and Neil Gorsuch was confirmed. They've been emboldened. But there were people out there before. There are still people out there, even in Maryland. It's a very liberal state. I live in Montgomery County, which is incredibly liberal. And still every week we can have between five and 25 protesters out there. And it's just kind of amazing that this is an issue even here. But we're really lucky in Maryland. We have amazing laws and protections. In 1992, we passed a constitutional amendment that guarantees the right to abortion access in our state. So it's enshrined in our state constitution now, no matter what happens at the federal level. And last year, we became the first state to guarantee that if the federal government were to stop funding Planned Parenthood, our state would step in and continue providing the financial support to the Planned Parenthoods in Maryland. It's a very supportive atmosphere, thank goodness. Legally, we don't have the kind of problems that people face with the trap laws the targeted restrictions on abortion providers. Yeah, you know, the thing that worries me when I listen to all of these issues that that you're going to address or that, you know, any of the the newer candidates who are kind of fueled by Trump's election is that the the pace at which these social safety nets and all of the policies that support women, for instance, they've been dismantled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how we're going to to put them back into place, you know, once we have the midterms, hopefully we'll have majorities. But just the the amount of work and the amount of years it's going to take to just put things back into place. To undo the damage. Undo the damage and then go back to the direction that we were heading, right? Because we really didn't have great access to healthcare before then. Exactly. So that worries me. I don't know. Does it worry you? It does. It 100% worries me. That is what I wanted to get involved and run for office in order to help protect what is still there that we can protect. Yeah. You know, I'm not running for Congress to be one of 435. I'm running in a small state where we can do a lot because we are very progressive. Yeah. 
So I'm hoping that that is the best place for me to have an impact. So you were also named the Gun Sense candidate by Every Town for Gun Sense and Moms Demand Action. What does that mean? Uh, that means that I've been very involved with the group uh, Moms Demand Action and. Oh, we've had such great success in Maryland this year. We've passed some really impressive laws. We've banned bump stocks and similar accessories. We've instituted a red flag law that allows a family member, partner, friend, close friend to get someone's guns taken away if they are a threat to themselves or others. It's something that could have prevented the Parkland shooting if that had been in place in Florida. And the one I'm most proud of is in Maryland and people who are convicted of domestic violence related charges are required to surrender any firearms they own and are prohibited from purchasing new ones. But there was no enforcement mechanism for that. There was no system that says you have to do it by this date. These are the things you have to do with it. And we got one. We created one. It's now two business days. The convicted party gets a verbal warning from the judge. He gets a written notice from the judge. The police get written notice of this and they have to surrender their weapons to either the police or a firearms dealer within two business days and have that receipt. We wanted them to have to turn the receipt into police but that created some Fifth Amendment self-incrimination issues. If you were convicted, you were then immediately barred from owning the weapon. So turning in the receipt would be incriminating yourself by still possessing them. So it's not as much as we want it, but it's still, it's about 95% of what we want it. And we can always go back and address that in future years and lobby for that. Right. So it's it's moving in the right direction. I mean, the, the good thing about that is that, I mean, people know the statistics around domestic violence that, you know, once there's a domestic violence incident and the woman attempts to flee or move out, that that's when she's in the most danger. That's the most dangerous right. time. So you have a lot of things on your platform. You have a very progressive platform, obviously. But many of those things we've actually passed here in Washington state, like the $15 minimum wage and, you know, free preschool. Yeah. Um, do you think that those policies will have the same level of support in your region? In my region, we've already passed the $15 minimum wage at the county level, and we're working on doing the universal pre-K. It's whether or not we can get the other parts of the state that are less progressive. The Eastern Shore has our only Republican congressman. Western Maryland is still far more conservative. But the population centers are Maryland, Prince George's, Baltimore, and Howard counties in Baltimore City. And they are overwhelmingly liberal and democratic. So I'm hopeful. And one of the things you guys already have out there in Washington that I really admire is death with dignity. So what's your support behind that? Why do you support that? I support that for the same reason that I support a woman's right to choose. It is about bodily autonomy from one end to the other. It's simply the government has no place in making medical decisions for people. And if they want to be able to end their lives peacefully with dignity and via medication, I think that should 100% be an option, just like I think abortion should be an option. And, you know, it's personal for me. My grandmother, who I was very, very close to, passed away about two years ago. And she had all of her paperwork in order. We had all the legal documentation. I had her legal power of attorney. She had the DNR, the advanced medical directives, all of it. 
And when she decided she didn't want any more interventions, she just wanted to be kept comfortable until she passed, I had to be the one to enforce that. And we'd had a lot of long, in-depth talks. I knew what her wishes were, and I obviously respected them. But it was amazing how difficult it was to get the doctors and nurses to respect it. And I can, I, at one point I physically had to bar them from the room and just not let them in because they continued to do things that she didn't want done. And I can only imagine what it must be like if you are someone who maybe this is a very sudden thing or you don't know the ins and outs of advanced medical directives. You don't know what the laws are. You don't know what protections you have, or you're not comfortable challenging a doctor's authority. My grandmother always called me a mouthy broad, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) I I took as a compliment. That is a compliment. (laughs) So I had a particular skill set that worked to my advantage there. But you shouldn't have to do that. That shouldn't be a requirement in order to have your wishes respected. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about that is that most people have not had direct experience with this, right? I mean, there's a larger percentage of people who have some relationship to someone who's needed to end a pregnancy. It's it's a difficult thing to communicate to, you know, a constituency about the need for this, right? It is. And I've found success talking about my personal experience, my grandmother, and also I have a genetic condition. It's a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, It was one of the contributing factors to my grandmother's death. She had it. My mom has it. I have it. And mine is more severe than my mother's is. Thank goodness. It seems to sometimes skip a generation in severity. But I, I know what the end of my life will look like. And I don't want to have to go through all of that stuff if I don't want to. So I have a very personal added incentive of sharing this story. And I understand the concerns that are not religious based of a lot of people in the disability community worry that it will be used as a way to do eugenics or to pressure people with disabilities to not be a drain on their family or a burden. And those are all things we can address already. I think in Washington state, you have to have two doctors certify. You have to do the mental health evaluation. You have to wait a week in between. You have to make two requests and then a third one in writing before you can get these prescriptions. And most of the time when people fill these prescriptions, they don't take them. They just want the security of knowing they have that option. So one of the things we also have here in Seattle or Washington State, rather, is the legalization of recreational marijuana, you know, which has been a success and it's been, you know, widely popular. And I think Kamala Harris just backed legislation to legalize it at the federal level. You know, we are Maryland's population is almost halfway exactly between Colorado and Washington, And in Colorado, it was about $260 million in extra revenue just from marijuana sales. It was about $200 million in Washington state. Split the difference, we could make about $230 million a year that we could put towards increasing funding for our schools, funding universal pre-K, doing all of these things. It's a no-brainer to me. I don't understand the reluctance We have medical marijuana, and let's be honest, 
it's medical to the extent that anyone can pay $250 to one of these doctors yeah, and they have a sore back and <laughs> they get a card and then they're going to be paying at a dispensary. I don't understand why we're turning a blind eye to this incredible source of revenue and we can't even get it out of committee for a vote. Yeah. I mean, you know, in addition to the amount of people's lives across the country who've been ruined for, you know, kind of this recreational use, right? Exactly. And that, and the, and the increased revenue. So, I mean, that is something that I'm proud of, you know, being here in Seattle and in Washington State. Do you guys have an expungement provision that came along with legalizing recreational marijuana? Because that's one of the things we really want to include in passing it here. And a lot of times we know that There have been study upon study upon study that proves that African-Americans and people of color are disproportionately arrested for minor drug offenses at numbers that are just not representative of who's actually using these drugs. Cannabis, I, I really don't like talking about it as a drug because I don't think it is. But if we legalize without expunging, we are still saddling people with this criminal record and prevents them from getting involved in the industry. If you've had a prior drug conviction, you aren't eligible to become a grower or a cultivator or a dispensary owner. So it's just another way that allows people who have just not been caught or never been suspected because of the color of their skin to continue benefiting from something that is already massively disproportionately hurt communities of color. Yeah. And so to answer your question, so as of, I guess, February, um, the city of Seattle, um, we did make the move to nullify all misdemeanor marijuana possession convictions. Oh, good. Yeah. So that was actually just this February. And I think that may have been at the urging of our new mayor, Jenny Durkin. She's actually the first female a mayor we've had in, I think, you know, since the 1920 or something. So. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. So, yes, we do have that. And another thing to be proud of. And we have yes. excellent, excellent espresso, too. So. <laughs> I, I have to say I'm a diehard Diet Coke <laughs> addict. So. um We have Diet Coke. As long as you have Diet Coke and not Coke <laughs> Light, we're yeah. good. That Coke Light stuff, it doesn't cut it. <laughs> okay, so what do you say to people who want to elect more women like yourself? How can they help beyond their individual vote? Uh, volunteer for the campaigns of women. Financially contribute. Tell your friends. Host a meet and greet. Go door knocking. Share their candidacy on social media. All of the things that go along with campaigning, it's always a little bit harder if you're a female. Like, Male candidates go door knocking by themselves and don't think about it. Yeah. Very frequently, you will be invited into a voter's home when you knock on their door as the candidate. I have to think about that. Yeah. That's a personal safety decision. Do I go into someone's house in a way that it's not for a male candidate? So just get involved with the campaigns. Yeah, I never thought about that. You're right. Um, that's something that all women have to think about all the time. I had really never thought about it until it happened. And then I was like, okay, I have to make a judgment call. And I went in and I'm here. It was fine. We had a very lovely conversation. But I did then start taking people with me when I went door knocking. I didn't do it by myself if I felt like that was going to happen. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> so Myla Johns, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a, it's been a true pleasure. And I wish you all the best in your campaign. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate. 
visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The Electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>